Come with us on a journey into the unknown, the unexplained, and the unbelievable. We will test your senses and challenge your beliefs. A world where science and religion clash. Or do they? You will meet real people and hear real stories, but you will not believe. You will witness yeah, you strange will. sights and hear strange sounds, but you will not believe. This will. is the New England Ghost Project. Welcome to the Good evening, everyone, and welcome to another edition of Ghost Chronicles International with the Steve Parson, the gold standard in ghost hunting and New England's own Van Helsing, right here on Tojinet, Pararex, Ghost Channel, and beyond. So, another week has gone by, the turkey has died, and we are all feasted on its feathered carcass, but we move on. Because we have something even better than Turkey. We have our own. Mr. Cal Cooper is joining us today. The rock parapsychologist. The easy rider parapsychologist these days. Oh, changed his name. And that would be the voice yep. of Steve Parsons. So, Steve, yeah, we have, did you have a good Thanksgiving? Uh, we had an excellent Thanksgiving because we don't celebrate Thanksgiving. We save our turkeys for Christmas. I, I think you should, uh, you know, initiate that holiday yourself well we have our own just ahead of it we we uh we set off fireworks and we we burn witches and we do all that cool stuff oh that's right you have the uh right the uh the 5th of november there what is that that's uh that's bonfire night where we celebrate the only man who ever entered the british parliament with honest intentions and that was to blow it up yeah there you go Anyways, um, in, in according to uh, our guest, Mr. Cal Cooper, uh, we also get to drink uh, minty peas or something. I have no clues. Mushy peas. Mushy peas. That's what it was. We drink. We, we do not. We drink mushy peas. We'll come to him in a minute. Okay. Uh, what's it? M- mushy peas. I, I, yeah. I mean, they're, they're a great delicacy here in the United Kingdom, but they're they're normally the preserve of fish and chips, chips as in potato fries, not the yeah. American oh, understanding course, of the, chips. The late late great Cal Cooper, that you uh, eat, drink your mushy peas around the uh, bonfire. I, I'm just saying that's what he. Well, you know. they, they do weird things up in the Midlands, so uh, you know they're a bit behind the times up there in the Dark Ages. Really. I suppose we better. I suppose we better uh, speak to the Easy Rider before what? the insults become too great. <laughs> no, oh, I mean, you know, uh, you've got a book to sell. You've got stuff to tell us about. Uh, well, we'll I'm going to start off first of all with uh, with mushy peas. Mushy peas. Have you never had those on bonfire night then? No. No. Well, we, ever since I was small, I remember people having that. Um, not only roasting um, chestnuts on bonfire night as well as Christmas, but also having um, some mushy peas in a cup and putting some mint sauce in it. And you mix it together and by the bonfire or watching fireworks, you just spoon it out and eat it. You can't really drink it. It's not that liquidy. It's still mush because it's mushy peas. Okay. So, well, yeah. we're, all in, we're all enlightened. So, yeah, Mr. Easy Rider... <laughs> I've seen the I've seen the picture of the of the it, it well is it a Harley? Uh, no, it's a Honda Shadow. 
a Honda Honda. Shadow so GT. You're, so you're now busily storming up and down the motorways and byways of Great Britain now on this uh, low-riding thing clad in leather. Yeah, well, not clad in leather, um, safety gear, yeah, but I absolutely adore my new bike. It's one of those where it's so shiny, you probably spend more... Oh, you've spoiled it now! What? That well, I'm not wearing... Know, the no, it's the leather-clad thing, but I've just got now this change of um, uh, mental image of you. You're now wearing, you know, day glow and uh, high vis <laughs> stuff, and no, no. you know, pass slowly, please running in, and all that sort of stuff written all over you. No, no, I'm not wearing um, a big fluorescent yellow jacket and a helmet and trousers and so forth. I've got a, a nice black and white jacket. That'll do. So That'll is do. it safe? To, so is it safe on the M1 then? Are we, yeah, are we safe on the British roads? It's safe on the British roads. Easy cruising. It's all fine. It's all good. Uh, you'll have to I'll get some you, Ray-Bans in. I'll give you a ride on the back, Steve. You'll be fine. No, 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 no. I, 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 um, uh, actually, we could do it the other way around because, um, you know, I have, I have my bike license. So, you know, I could take you. Yeah, if you no want. No problem. No problem. If you want, if you're careful with it. Or are you going to uh, get out the old moped? Uh, well, my last one uh, had lots of CCs, so uh, no, I can, I can, you know, I can ride them. So anyway, Cal, um, <laughs> Mister Easy Rider, yeah, um, the book, another the book. new book, another one, busy, a busy, busy boy. I have been, and this one's been a long-awaited thing. I can't believe it has actually, even though it was in a way, it's not a, a very big book. It's been a slow project to put together because um, I think I started it or had the idea for kind of completing the book last November. And um, I was going through the Alex Tanners Foundation website. And for those whoa, listening, whoa, 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 whoa. you better rewind now and explain to people, uh, first of all, the premise of the book and, um, and bring them up to speed on, on the who, what, where, why and when. I'm getting to that. It was in the story. I was cleverly going to weave it in. Very we'll cleverly. Weave it in quick. <laughs> uh, the, premise book, the premise of the book is Conversations with Ghosts. It's an, um, for years, it's been an unpublished account of private investigations between the late Dr. Alex Tanis and Dr. Carlos Osis. And there was two things that um, both gentlemen believe could ultimately provide scientific evidence for survival. And that was, one, if we tested the out-of-body experience in the laboratory and could prove that people could see images at distance in their out-of-body state, and two, we could actually measure what it was that was leaving the body in the out-of-body state under laboratory conditions. And the second one they believed that could confirm survival was if they could get um, decent information out of haunting investigations from a a variety of methods. So Carlososis would take along... um, uh, various environmental monitoring equipment of the time in the 1970s and 80s. He was a big fan of taking strain gauges along. And um, I think some of the other stuff was um, a lot of the simplistic stuff that Harry Price and Andrew um, McKenzie had been uh, using. So, well, we'll correct, we'll correct that assumption that it was simplistic. No, no, we won't. <laughs> no, I was just in terms of um, stuff like if someone had seen an apparition going up the stairs, they'd put like fine thread across the top of the stairs to see if it would actually damage the thread or actually go through it. And, that, and, that's, that, and that's less simplistic than Price's method of using infrared photography. 
Oh no, I'm not referring to that. I mean, there were some technical. You things. said you said price. You said, I said yeah. Method. I said some of the simplistic methods, not every <laughs> using was simplistic. I will stick up for Cal for that. That's exactly what he said. And and yeah, I. It was the inference. It was the inference that Price was using simplistic methods. Okay, but anyway, powerful. sorry, 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 sorry. You, uh, you, you, you were talking. <laughs> so uh, anyway, you get an insight into what it was they were doing on haunting investigations because it was never mentioned before. It, you'll find in a various few bits of publications here and there that those were the things that they were going to look into: out-of-body experiences and haunting investigations to try and clarify some scientific evidence for survival. And there was nothing published on the hauntings. Um, in Alex Tanis's first book, Beyond Coincidence, there's one chapter briefly discussing his experiences with talking to ghosts and communicating with them. And um, then I was going through some of the unpublished notes and files that the Alex Tanis Foundation have on their website and some of the stuff that they don't have on the website in electronic format. And these were unpublished interviews with Alex about what are ghosts, um, is there an afterlife? How do you see it from your perspective as being a psychic, but also a scientist at the same time? And um, all of these could have been um, collected together and finish off the book, because the book itself was only three chapters of an idea um, that they had that was unpublished. So the idea was to take these three chapters, expand them, and try and pad it out a bit more to form a full book that would at least provide some sort of framework for how Alex and Osis wanted to present a book or an argument for hauntings being... Um, a good method of investigation for looking into survival. So um, that's really what the book's about. It's something that was planned to be done but never got done, so hopefully I've made a fairly decent job of putting it all together. Oh, so uh, you actually have contributed some work towards this book, haven't you? Yeah, I mean, even with taking those three chapters and some of these unpublished interviews and some of his unpublished notes it still wasn't quite big enough. And not everyone knows Alex Tanis. He was very big over in the USA. Um, he travelled out to Egypt quite a lot and um, done various radio and TV shows and become very famous for his work, but not in the UK. I mean, very rarely will you find reference um, in UK psychical research books and papers to Alex Tanis. He spent 20 years working with the American Society of Psychical Research on haunting investigations and out-of-body experiences. And he came from Portland, Maine, and um, did a lot of investigations around there. A lot of local journalists and um, newspaper reporters went with him to haunted locations, wrote up some of their accounts of what it was like to work with him. But then these just got lost in history. So the good thing about the foundation is um, they found some of these and have managed to um, scan them and keep electronic copies. So these were things that I could read into to help me try and pad out the book. But even so, I took it as granted that not many people know who Alex Tanis is. So the entire start of the book is a, a long introduction about who is Alex Tanis, what was his life like growing up, discovering these psychic abilities, and then how did he suddenly get into parapsychology. And he came from a very religious background, um, which really didn't like the fact that he was having these psychic experiences. He had many great predictions as a child um, and predicted a lot of his family members' deaths. And before he was even born... His father was counseled by the prophet Khalil Gibran, who wrote the book The Prophet. And he said, um, you will have a son of exceptional gifts, but a man of also great sorrows. And that turned out to be correct because a lot of his family died at a young age and many other tragic events occurred in his life, which is all documented in his first book, Beyond Coincidence. So I feel this all in, in the introduction and also the incredible academic background he got. 
Um, so even though he was um, being raised in a very religious background, he started his degrees off in theology, um, took that on to do a master's in theology, then delved a little bit into philosophy and was allowed to explore psychic phenomena a little bit more, began reading for a PhD, and um, dropped the research for the PhD and went into um, doing a divinity, uh, divinity doctorate instead. Um, so people that aren't aware of the difference between the two, a PhD is usually a research degree where for a few years you will construct a thesis of either something theoretical or um, research projects. Um, instead, Alex was doing that and changed his mind and went to do a divinity doctorate where he was um, doing essays and papers and a thesis on biblical interpretations of humanistic issues. So it's where you can deal with day-to-day -day issues like psychology and sociology, but um, interpret these um, various interactions of human behavior from um, biblical notes and writings. And so because he had a background in theology, that helped him along with that. And then his final master's degree was in education and counseling, um, which he did at the University of Southern Maine, which is also where he set up shop as a lecturer. He spent most of his time as a lecturer at the University of Southern Maine. He lectured classes on psychic healing, dream interpretation, and parapsychology. And it was the very first parapsychology module to be offered with credit towards your final degree. And it also wasn't souped up under another name, such as um, just calling it um, psychology or under religion or philosophy. They left it as just the title parapsychology. And a lot of universities before then didn't do that because, um, in a way, it gave them a bad name that they were teaching such a thing. Um, in the 1970s and 80s, it was still quite controversial to have such a topic like that. Um, so that's where he got up to. During all that time, he was working with the American Society for Psychical Research, doing um, various investigations into the out-of-body experience, the haunting phenomena, and uh, doing demonstrations now and then to show some of his incredible abilities. Um, one of the ones that fascinates me the most is light phenomena. And you don't hear this from many um, psychics. The only person I can relate it to is um, the Indian chap that Harry Price um, investigated, Kuda Books. And he, could, he had x-ray vision, even when they blind, uh, blindfolded him. What Alex had was uh, light project, uh, projection ability, in which he could look at an image and then project it onto the wall using his eyes. And this became more luminescent if you dimmed the lights or even turned the lights off you'd have this glowing image on the wall. That's and really he, did this... he could physically project the, the image? Mm -hmm. um, he did this for several... There's like a few um, mentions of it in various books, especially Herbert B. Greenhouse's book, The Astral Journey. But I've written it up into the introduction of Conversations with Ghosts um, because you think, well, if he's doing it at dinner parties and while people have had a few drinks and so forth, is Alex really using a bit of suggestion here and getting people to think that something's being projected? Because some of them are described as a shadowy outline of a man. Um, right. It wasn't really like convincing me until I realized that they'd taken it a step further, and he got involved in the Maimonides research. The Maimonides research was mainly um, the Maimonides Medical Center. They were mainly looking at um, dream telepathy. But they had Alex Tannison and um, the late... Uh, Chuck Honiton and Dr. Alan Vaughan, they tested him for the light projection ability and they managed to reproduce it in the laboratory. But they were very sceptical of what they'd actually seen. They couldn't believe that they were actually seeing this. So well, did, one just, of their, did they take a photograph of it? I've got to look into it further because I don't know what happened. I mean, it, seems, it seems blindingly obvious that there you have objective correlation of the claim. 
Well, this is this is the thing. I don't know what happened to all the Maimonides papers. Stanley Krippner will be a person to actually go back to and ask about these. But their explanation for what they'd seen was the old interpretation back to Myers and Henry Sidrick as to why we see apparitions. They believed they'd just telepathically seen an impression that Alex was sending to them rather than objectively seeing something on the wall. But, but you know, it, it strikes me as just being beyond obvious that... Uh, He's he's performing this. I don't know what you want to call it. Um, this phenomena, trick, uh, creating her hallucination. The simplest test of all, the most obvious test of all, and nobody seems to know whether it was done or not. Mm. It is one of these things. You go through. I mean, I wouldn't t- accept. I wouldn't have accepted that testimony on the basis that. Oh, of course not. You know. It, if they haven't done it, then throw it out with the bathwater because it's but you just, know what's interesting. You know, we're, we're down to hearsay. Stephen, yeah. you know what's interesting, and and somebody was in the chat room was complaining that uh, all that Cal did was uh, rehash the book and took credit for it, but that's not exactly true because he added so much more. This stuff that we didn't weren't aware of. First of all, he got the work published, which is awesome in itself because that would have stayed unpublished for maybe ever. Who knows? And mm. furthermore, we learn about other stuff that, that happened uh, that a lot of people don't know about. So, I mean, well, I think it's an awesome idea that, that this was, was done. To this I degree. think I've got to defend myself there and say that the book wasn't a complete rehash. I mean, half of the book is stuff that was written but never published. That all had to be thoroughly edited and checked over right. with the Tannis Foundation and the people. And as um, Steve pointed out, I did contribute other stuff, not only the introduction, but it still wasn't long enough. So there's four appendices sections. One of those is an interview with Lloyd Auerbach that I got permission from Lloyd, who worked with Alex for several years. I got permission to uh, reproduce the interview. Another one was a true insight into what actually happened at the Amityville house, because Alex and Osis were the very first people on the scene to investigate it. And it's all mixed into history as to what actually happened there. So I've rewritten an original account of what happened on Alex's part, pushing aside everything that happened with the Warrens and Hans Holzer and not going into that because I'm looking at the very first investigation that took place with the American Society of Psychical Research mm-hmm. and the uh, Psychical Research Foundation of North Carolina. Okay, let's, let's just clarify then, um, just, just because there is, uh, there is this question um, about... Mm-hmm. As a as a sort of now, I mean, I I do know because I've I've read a draft copy of the book. Um, but you know, just as a as a sort of percentage ballpark figure, how much of this book uh, and indeed telephone call from the dead is is the work of Tannis, and how much is is the work of Cooper, two thousand twelve thirteen? Well, if we go to telephone calls from the dead, about ten to twenty percent of that um, is. Um, looking at other ideas that have already been published but incorporating them into my own thoughts uh-huh. and looking uh-huh. at accounts after the original book that were never published that were contributed right. to my data collection. So about 80% of that is all original. With the Tanis book, he's the main author. It's his book and it was his uh-huh. material. It was just never published. So right. Right. I'd probably say about 40% of Conversations with Ghosts is original material that I've written but nearly all of it has never been published or um, been made public in the form that it is. I mean, you, can, you could have had it or seen it or um, had it available to read. However, you would have had to look at the raw notes. Right. Oh no, I we just wanted we just wanted to clarify uh, that that point because yeah. um, you know, there is 
there was a questionnaire, so uh, in yep. order to clarify it. But I'd like to come back to this idea of um, parasite. Uh, no, of parasite. <laughs> well, we'll come to that as well because Daniel Hume also um, had that claimed ability as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'd like to come back to this idea of parapsychologists investigating hauntings. And, mm-hmm. and in particular, you said that Tanis uh, Anosis were, had a particular. Uh, they were looking at it in terms of survival. Now, that's pretty standard ghost hunter stuff, but. Um, it, it does have to be said that people like Price and other uh, spontaneous case investigators actively stress that there is no link between survival research and ghost research in that yeah. the mechanisms do not indicate survival. Uh, the fact that people are seeing apparitions of the living and or the dead and or both mm-hmm. um, is not an indicator of survival. Why? W- why is it? Why is the particular bias in the case of Tannis put towards survival? Well, because that's predisposing. That's predisposing. You know, it's making an assumption on the research and, and skewing the whole direction of the research, isn't it? I suppose it's looking at ghost hunting from a transpersonal psychology perspective or first-person parapsychology perspective, where you concentrate more so on the subjective experience rather than the objective phenomena that's going on. Because the main focus of the ghost hunts was to um, work off of Tanis's impressions. And, you know, there were a good um, duo for investigating hauntings. And they also took Osis's research assistant, Donna McCormick, with them quite a few times. And, you know, both of them had the perfect set of qualifications to look into ghosts. Um, Osis whoa, and- whoa, whoa, whoa. Hang wait. on a minute. No, wait, 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 wait. Wait, 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 wait. Wait, wait, wait. No, you've already gone too far when you said parapsychologists have the perfect qualifications to investigate. No, I didn't say parapsychologists. I said the two have perfect qualifications. (laughs) Let me finish. Let me finish. Osis was a qualified psychologist and um, had been using various laboratory equipment before. Um, He was very skilled with what he was using. I don't profess to be skilled with whatever the hell he was using, but it's all detailed in the documented work that was rewritten up. Tanis, though, was a qualified counsellor. He was also qualified as a psychologist, and um, he was also very um, deeply qualified in theology and took into respect people's various religious backgrounds and why they might interpret phenomena in different religious ways. Um, so that you know they've got the abilities of several people kind of rolled into one, but you have one person who's acting as an objective scientist and the other person who's being this subjective um, experiencer of the phenomena and also claiming that they can speak to the dead as well and that so might that's be the why case that, that no that might be the case but it still doesn't answer the basic problem that you have psychologists setting out to measure stuff which they are not qualified to do because measuring things such as environmental variables is the job of an engineer or a physicist not a psychologist now just just to clarify did either of them have specific qualifications in measuring things I believe Osis did because the amount of times he kept on using strain gauge that, stuff that, for the astrophotic experience. Doesn't well, you know, there are lots of ghost hunters who use uh, thermometers. It doesn't mean they have qualifications in environmental science. True. So the fact that you just use a strain gauge because hey, I found one lying around and he used one a lot doesn't mean he's qualified to make those measurements. Yeah, you know, this is a problem that I think 
stems it, it, it's it's endemic within ghost hunting this idea that parapsychologists have a special ability or special qualifications that give them the you know some sort of uh, ability when it comes to uh, undertaking investigation of spontaneous cases parapsychologists actually they're they're exceptionally well qualified for playing around in laboratories and writing long papers about the psychology of people's experiences but when it comes to taking measurements you know i i've presented presented papers you've you've been been there when i've done uh, the presentation to the papers that prove time and time and time again psychologists given a piece of equipment are going to mess it up but you're generalizing, Stephen. You're, you're saying no, that, no. I can be very specific. I've got very specific cases. You're saying all parapsychologists have absolutely no uh, field experience. They have no ability to work with different instruments or <sighs> devices, and and that's absolutely false. There are many, many, including Lou uh, Arbeck, who uh, Lloyd Arbeck, who have. There are there are virtually Dean Radin has has got the necessary qualifications. Uh, in physical sciences and electrical engineering. I don't know of many other psychologists, because let's be honest, you can't actually have a qualification as a parapsychologist. You can call yourself one. Um, Except for plasticist degrees, which Lloyd Auerbach got one of the few. But, you you know, it's still not a qualification in engineering or physical sciences, and they are essential qualifications. Time and time time again, we we see ghost hunters being misled into the idea that a parapsychologist is the right person to lead an investigation of a haunted location. Well, I don't and think it, I'm necessarily it, saying parapsychologist, though, because if you look at these guys' qualifications, I just outlined Tannis's qualifications, all five degrees, and not one of them was in parapsychology. And but not one of them was in physical measurements either. No, that's true, but he was applying stuff that he'd been using in the laboratory for many years and published on... Uh, regarding out-of-body experiences and just applied that to haunted locations. Would, when would, you look at the would, research, it doesn't appear to be that he's making any errors in what he's doing. No, I mean, you sometimes a, you I, mean, I know how a thermometer works, but I don't have a degree in physics. So and I can read the temperature. Exactly. Ah, there's a difference between reading the temperature and understanding what the... T- well, in fact, there's a difference between simply reading the temperature and understanding how the measurements are made correctly and what those measurements mean and interpreting the measurements in the correct way. Now, I'm sure you as a psychologist would take great exception to somebody running courses in psychology with no qualifications at all. After all, it took you four years to get your degree. And... You know, somebody coming along and saying, hey, I'm a psychologist, I'm going to run courses, would naturally irk you, would it not? It, it would do, but at the same time, if someone's thoroughly, you know, looked into the subject without having gained the qualification, you can actually see that that's coming across in what they're preaching. I mean, look at it in the other terms, like what I've done. I've published a couple of things on Egyptology. I have no background in that. I'm not qualified as an Egyptologist. And someone could probably argue if they look through my paper thoroughly that I've probably got something wrong and that person will be an Egyptologist to actually say you're not an Egyptologist and what you publish is a load of nonsense. But I made sure that what I was doing was thoroughly checked and researched before I even decided to publish stuff on a, a Ian topic said, let's talk about some other, other nonsense and that's the break that's coming up. So. <laughs> now, uh, you're listening to Ghost Chronicles International with the honoraries Honorary, honorary, whatever. 
bad mood, Steve. He's in New England's own Van Helsing with special guest help. Welcome to Tokinet, radio with a cutting edge. Feel the need to do some soul searching or make some changes in your life to create a more positive future? Then Circles of Wisdom is just the place for you. Circles of Wisdom is a metaphysical bookstore and more, located on Route 28 in downtown Andover, Massachusetts. We carry a large selection of books and music, crystals and gemstones, jewelry and gifts, sage, aromatherapy, and so much more, all in a relaxing and welcoming atmosphere. We offer classes on a variety of topics like yoga, Reiki, psychic development, alternative healing, and personal transformation. For guidance on this journey we call life, get a reading from one of our many readers at Circles of Wisdom, 90 Main Street in downtown Andover, right next to Bertucci's. Call us at 978-474-8010 or check us out on the web at www.circlesofwisdom.com. Lots to see and do in a feel-good place, an oasis in this hectic world. And spooky, they all talk ugly gooky, the Parax family. The shows are paranormal, not stuffy but informal. The topics are abnormal, the Parax family. They're strange, deranged, unrestrained. So grab your favorite brew, it's time to rendezvous as we give awards to the Parax family. <laughs> All right. Hi, I'm Ron Kolek, author and lead investigator of the New England Ghost Project, New England's own Van Helsink. And I'm Ann Kerrigan, the blonde bombshell, and I'm the lead investigator of East Bridgewater's Most Haunted. And we'd like to invite you to tune in. Ghost Chronicles, the next generation. Every Wednesday night. At 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time on www.toginet.com. So, so yeah, what are they going to hear on this stupid show? What are they going to hear? They are going to hear things that they can't believe are happening. Like uh, Beyond Bizarre. And cemetery tripping. Oh, that's your deal, right? Absolutely. Yeah, one of these days you're going to get uh, so scared of one of these cemetery tripping things that uh, you'll, I'll have to get a new co-host. <laughs> I am brave beyond belief. Nothing yeah, we'll see. scares me. Except so anyways, if you're bored and you got nothing to do on Wednesday night, tune in to Ghost Chronicles Next Generation with Ann and Ron. See you then. And welcome back to part two of Ghost Chronicles International with the very lovely Van Helsink and me, Steve Parsons, and our very special guest tonight, the Easy Rider parapsychologist, Dr. Cal Cooper. And before the break, we were discussing whether parapsychologists should be allowed anywhere near haunted houses. Weren't we, Callum? We were indeed. And we agree, don't we not, do we not, that I don't know. What did we agree on before the break? Not much. Should they? Should they? Come I mean, on, Ron. You've got your, you've got your degree in environmental science. Within You're reason, to Ron, measure Ron things. raised it earlier. Within reason, there are the exceptional few parapsychologists that should okay. be allowed. I agree. Yeah. I, I, I'll, I'll go with that. So, Cal, what were you doing last night? 
<laughs> what was what? Um, oh yes, last night we were investigating um, the psychology department at the University of Northampton. And for... Cal, were you ma- were you making measurements with equipment? Uh, no, we weren't actually. Oh, cool. We were tweeting. It's good to hear. You were tweeting. We so... were doing the old notebook and pen and tweeting. Excellent. So... I'm glad to hear it. Wait, wait, wait a minute, Stephen. Stephen, I mean, aren't you making a big, big deal about this measurement? Yes. I mean, yes. let's yes. face it. You don't need a degree in in, parano- in um, environmental science to measure things. It's, it's, you know. No, but pr- the problem with parapsychologists doing this sort of stuff is not per se them doing it because, as I've always said, it's a multidisciplinary approach and we can draw a great deal upon, uh, from the work of parapsychology. Right. However, however, like in archaeology, who draw upon historians and social historians and they draw upon geophysics and a whole raft of other specialities, those specialist areas are left to specialist uh, investigators now now, but the problem with the public and if if we well let me let me let me answer the question because the problem is you've got parapsychologists because of the media and because of what they say in the media the old trust me i'm a scientist routine people believe that parapsychologists have some sort of special ability and training to investigate hauntings and apparitions when that patently is not the case now what you don't see is parapsychologists working to correct that myth and that misunderstanding but what you do see a lot of is parapsychologists going on organizing running leading ghost investigations which is misleading those who are there into, bel- in, into perpetuating this idea that they have this special ability, when in fact they don't. They are part of a multidisciplinary perspective and part of a disciplinary, multidisciplinary team. But letting them out on their own, they just go rogue on you. And, oh, that, and I think you've got parapsychologist envy, if you ask me. Uh, no, far, far, far from it. Far from it. To defend... I've worked Me. with Cal before. He's, he's more than acceptable to be able to investigate a haunted place. Uh, well, I've, def- I've also worked with Cal before. I've worked with numerous parapsychologists at haunted locations. And <laughs> as I've said, they should form part of the multidisciplinary team. But the problem is, like with mediums, you have this idea uh, that's endemic within the public that they have special abilities. The medium has special abilities and is given a bigger degree of of emphasis on what they say, and that's also true of parapsychologists. Now, you know, that's both, both... Of the team leader, not anything else, or whoever's facilitating the thing. That's not the problem of parapsychologists. Certainly, it is. It is. It team. is when they do. No, it's it, not. It, it's it's the it, team. It is absolutely. No, it is absolutely because, like mediums who do nothing to counteract the opinion that their perspective is just one of, you know, it's a human perspective like everybody else who is there and needs to be taken account of. Well, the parapsychologi- just, parapsychologists do not come along and say, let, let I, I have, yeah, but I'm just finishing the point that parapsychologists <laughs> like mediums do not counteract that misapprehension because it works in their favour. To I'll go back. I'll make the book the second point, and this um, focusing on the medium point. The, the first one is 
um, when it comes to teaching the third year psychology students that we have at the university that take on parapsychology, I teach two classes in apparitions and hauntings. And I do make it very clear, and this year we've got 60 plus students doing parapsychology, I make it very clear that it is not the job of a parapsychologist to use environmental monitoring equipment. No psychologist is actually trained to do that, nor do we actually train anyone within parapsychology to do that, because usually the people giving them the lecture don't know how to use that. And I even put my hands up to the audience and say, I couldn't honestly tell you the complete ins and outs of an EMF meter and what it's doing and why. But this is why we have other people and then gave examples and then Steve, your research is referred to what parasites does and and so forth. So it's it's kind of hammering and trying to dispel this myth to the audience that has probably come into doing a psychology degree and also taking on the parapsychology module because they've seen this misinterpretation in the media of, well, a parapsychologist, you know, not only do they have this skill with psychology, they also have the skill with physics as well. So obviously in parapsychology, I'm going to learn something about EMF meters when really we dispel that and say that's not entirely true. Yes, they've been used in parapsychological research. It doesn't mean to say that a parapsychologist has used them and is trained to use them. To go back on to the point of the book and this focusing on the medium, I, I think I can relate it to what Ron was saying, why well, it's down to sort of whoever's running the show. And it was the case with Tanisonosis. I think they were adopting a full parapsychological approach to haunting. So it wasn't down to, well, can we look for the environmental explanations that could be causing the haunting? You have someone here who's saying they have psychic abilities. If we go about the location in just a purely qualitative manner, the information he's coming out with psychically, can we clarify that against historical records, the people that live there and the experiences they have? The only point that OSIS came in was to see if unusual changes with the environment coincided with Alex and his psychic interpretations. And it's a very small team. It was literally just Alex and Osis, or maybe Donna McCormick, as she joined them as well. Um, so they were just doing something unique compared to all the other investigations where they were going in looking for the rational explanations, the environmental ones and the psychological ones, before jumping to anything parapsychological. So we could argue that the take they were doing on hauntings was very much a sort of anthropological approach to hauntings where they're embracing this experience. Someone saying that they're psychic, they don't test them one way or the other to see if they are. They accept it and say, okay, tell me something psychic. Tell me about the dead here. Let's see if we can clarify that. Um, so I think they were just giving it a chance, really. I, I think, in all fairness, we can't really say that that's necessarily a bad thing because it's trial and error to see if it works. And when you look at the accounts of these investigations, Alex got an incredible amount of information right, you know, that seems to surpass some other psychics that went to haunted locations and were documented for doing so. He, he came out with some incredible predictions, and even in the out-of-body experiments at the ASPR, he was getting incredible hit rates. He really was a, a unique individual, like Eileen Garrett and um, so many other people, that, you know, they... We had them for a while and that was it. They've gone. So we can't go back and really, in some cases, see truly what maybe was going on. That's no, I can't, I, can't I can't disagree with, with anything you said there except the one point um, that, that I made earlier. And that is this pre-assumption that they were dealing with a survival uh, test that the, in some way that hauntings related to survival. Now, no competent ghost investigator should make that assumption. And indeed, for more than 100 years, that, uh, that 
that aspect of ghosts and hauntings has been played down. It, it, it's common within, for example, uh, fictional work. You know, the dead come back. It, it, the, the Dickens uh, returning Marley ghost. Mm-hmm. Um, but within active psychical research, the idea uh, that ghosts represent any form of survival um, is is largely discounted and played down in favour of. Uh, a non-assumption led. Well, what does this phenomena represent? Yeah. Well, I, again, I'd have to argue that that again emphasises the fact that what they were doing was very much a first-person parapsychology or anthropological approach. And uh, Tanner said he was speaking to the dead. It was just accepted as was, such as in the case of the story of Ruth, where she'd been sexually abused and later saw apparitions of the abuser and could project apparitions of whoever she liked. They wanted to test her, as most people probably would, as a potential schizophrenic for having repressed such memories. Instead, Dr. Morton Schatzman, in the book and the research of the story of Ruth, he said, OK, you're seeing ghosts, let's talk about them, and counselled the ghosts and just jumped straight from the, the rational to the paranormal and said, you are seeing ghosts, tell me about the ghosts. And they learnt a lot more from taking it down that route than they did um, from looking at the perspective they, they should have done and most other people would have done as well. It was just a sort of a unique case, trial and error, and thought, in this case, let's just try something a little bit different just to see what happens. Mm-hmm. And they did learn from it. And I think Tanis and Isis learned a lot just from doing it from their perspective, saying, you are seeing ghosts, okay, we'll accept that, we won't say any other way, tell me about them. Let's go to a haunted okay. location, you tell me who haunts there. And, you know, just put him on the spot every time. Well, I think that's actually clarified the point that you were you were making earlier, where, where I think the confusion in my mind came from. Um, and, and you know, I'd like to move it on a little bit and talk about these light anomalies because I know, yes. I know that that's something that I mean, it's physical. Um, you know, if you can see it, you can measure it. You know, it, it's a real event, hopefully. Mm-hmm. Um, so, do you want to? Can we go into a little bit more detail about the nature oh, yeah. of these light, light, light events or light anomalies? I'm trying, Again, to, I'm trying not to say one particular word. Uh, <laughs> yes. I'm going to, uh, I need to write something up in, in terms of an article or something that just puts all of this together. Again, much like a lot of the Tanner stuff, it's spread about in several different books and only briefly mentioned. So I would like to actually write a full article outlining every bit of information that I can find on him producing this phenomenon. But the best one that I thought was quite incredible was in the preference um, written by Timothy Gray in the start of their final book, Dreams, Symbols and Psychic Power. And that was written by Alex Tannis and Timothy Gray. So if you read the preference, it's talking about how Timothy Gray's agent went to a dinner party with Alex and several other friends. And um, just after dinner, he mentioned this light projection phenomena. And as opposed to all the other dinner parties he'd been to where he projected something on the wall at the end, he did something completely unique that I didn't expect when I first read it. And he he held out the palm of his hand and looked into it and concentrated as much as he can, and so much so, they said, within this account, that he produced a ball of light within his hand, this ball of energy that everyone could see, all but Timothy Gray's agent. She couldn't see it, yet everyone else was adamant that they could. The next morning, she woke up to find that she had perfect vision, and she normally wore glasses and contacts. So she panicked, thinking that in the night she'd just fallen asleep wearing her contact lenses. She realised that um, she hadn't, and she just spontaneously had good vision. And then later that morning, she was going to visit Alex. Alex 
came up to her straight away and said, I visited you this morning in the astral body and mentioned something to do with her eyes. And she was just shocked that, and, and decided in her own mind that all the events were connected. But going back, the, not her spontaneous vision, that doesn't necessarily fa- fascinate me and make me think, well, that's paranormal. But also, more so this effect that he was producing a ball of light in the palm of his hand. Um, again, that one I find quite unusual, and I don't recall any other psychic claiming they could do that. Well, actually, there is one very famous psychic who had that very same ability that was well documented by psychical researchers. William Crookes, for example, uh, studied and documented the cases of Daniel Hume, uh, mm-hmm. where Hume was claiming to hold lighted uh, glowing coals in his hands uh, and, and pass them through, through you know, people's hair. And, oh, you know, I he, that. He, 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 could, he could create these intense glowing coals by picking you know, a black coal up from the fire and then hold it. It sounds remarkably the same. And this was, this was studied... Well, it, sounds, you know, it, it does sound remarkably similar. And that was documented by Crooks uh, and Adair <laughs> at, at many of the, um, many of the Hume... Uh, seances and i think one of the russian psychics uh too um whose name escapes me for the time being but also uh, uh, it was one of the female russian psychics oh, also no. produced produced balls of light and in fact balls of light within the seance room are a very well documented oh, yeah, phenomenon um you know seance lights so i it's it's interesting that Tannis too could perform this because it, um, Hume was an astounding medium. Um, I was aware of the, of the lights within the sound room, but the manner in which he's producing them just seems a little bit more um, open than the other ones. You know, it's not in poorly lit conditions. People well, said Hume that, was in full full light. Um, I'm just, in fact, you know, he he. Described in the lounge of you know in the in the drawing room after lunch you know, with the lights on, uh, Hume reaches into the fireplace and picks up a coal, um, mm. a black coal, and holds it clasped within the palm of his hands, in full full view of everybody, and concentrates. He stares at it, and the coal begins to glow brightly, and it glows intensively. Uh, at which case, at which time he then passes it. A, through the hair, I think, of, of several of the sitters. Now, this, this was, was observed by William Crookes uh, as part of his studies of Hume. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know, the, the, it's something that, that both these astonishing mediums seem to, seem to uh, have. Um, and yeah. there is you know, quite... If you, if you read um, Heyday of a Wizard, um, one of the biographies of Hume, um, or indeed Adair's book... Um, or in fact, Crook's, Crook's own works, uh, in which he, he describes the studies of uh, of Hume, you'll see several accounts of this glowing coal um, phenomena. Yeah, no, I, I've heard of the glowing coal phenomena Hume before. I, I just, to me, it just didn't seem quite the same as what Alex was doing. But I, I completely admit there are striking similarities to how it's being produced and other things that that's going on it also makes me think of skull when you see the video footage again that's in the dark though with skull and all these yeah. balls of light yeah. are coming out and nick kyle who's the um, president of the scottish society of psychic research he was telling me what he experienced when he sat in at skull and that when the ball of light came up to him he could put his he could cup his hands around it and then it would still pass through his hands but 
you know, that's completely different to Tannis's situation where, you know, it's, it's normal lighting conditions, except for in the brief description at the Maimonides Medical Center where um, he said he could do it, the test, and then thought, what if we turn out the lights? Is it actually producing light? Is it luminescent, these projections that you're doing? Um, so, again, I need to find what happened to that research and, and where it went. I, to I think, it's just, I think it's just fascinating to hear that Tannis and Hume both have this same ability. Um, because it does, you know, if you do read the accounts of Hume, you will find it, it, you, what you're describing sounds remarkably similar um, to uh, what what Daniel Hume was was uh, capable of doing and was studied and observed doing under under excellent observational conditions. So I I find that truly fascinating. But also uh, this idea that he could project images is this is that not reminiscent of Ted Serios and photography? Uh, I've got to admit, I haven't really read into that. Oh, well, he, he could project an image actually onto a piece of photographic... Uh, onto, oh, okay, you know, that's photo- it, yes. Uh, okay, then yeah. again, that's... Yeah, that's I mean, the, I, I, I would argue slightly tongue-in-cheek there that the only difference is that, that the researchers there actually got a photograph, an objective piece of data, which which they seem to have neglected in the case of Tanis so far. Well, I... I yeah, I don't oh, wow. know whether they did or didn't. They must have done, and that must be somewhere. And so the only thing I can do is find out for people involved in the Maimonides research what happened to all the raw documents. Perhaps they dreamt it. <laughs> Probably <laughs> being, being his dream research somewhere. Yes, Ron? I, no, no it's, it's absolutely right. Just because you, you, you don't have a, 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 an example of it now doesn't mean it doesn't exist. It just... Or, or if it did exist, maybe it was lost. We don't know, uh, but we shouldn't certainly, uh, you know, discount it. Uh, you know, it's certainly something that's worth looking into. Oh, I agree. But I, I, I was just, you know, earlier when he was when when Cal was talking about these ideas of projecting images under, te- you know, with with serious qualified researchers that you know one would have expected that the such extraordinary proof would have been well documented and should be well known to psychical research, not have fell down the back of a filing cabinet somewhere. Well, this is the thing again with Alex. He just gets vague mentions throughout psychical research history. If you take any sort of main books on parapsychology, just take 10 off your shelf between 1970 and 1990, go to the index, you'll probably find maybe in a two or three of those books, you might find the odd page or two that briefly mentions Alex, and it's only referring to the out-of-body research that um, they conducted at the ASPR because they published a paper on it in 1980. Uh, and that's about it. Everything else is kind of no, lost you're a, in you're, abs- you're absolutely right. Um, and this is something we talked about uh, recently between us because uh, when you were talking about Tannis, uh, I realised that... It, to all intents and purposes, I didn't know. I, I knew the name, I knew the very bare bones of the skeleton, but I knew absolutely nothing about him. And it is very, very difficult, as you say, to go to the bookshelf and actually find stuff. Mm. Um, I know you've you've partially rectified that lately, um, yes. and, and your new book will will go some way towards addressing that problem even further. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, is is that the reason for the book? Is that uh, I mean, is that your motivation for the book? Was it the research, or was it uh, to gain Tanis the recognition he he uh, was was missing, or was it was it a combination of all factors? And there before was... you get to that, I, I do want to mention we are talking about uh, your new book, which is Conversation with, with Ghosts, and uh, uh, go on. 
carry on. <laughs> There's several reasons. Um, I first got a scholarship from the Alex Tanners Foundation in 2011, and I had to admit that when I first got the scholarship, I didn't know much about who Alex Tanners was. I was probably at the same level that you were, Steve, where I'd heard of the name, um, but I didn't really know, well, what did he do? How come he's had a whole foundation set up after him? So I, I started to read um, into his work as they sent me his first book, Beyond Coincidence. And um, as I became more involved in the foundation, I picked up the book and I just couldn't put it down. And I thought, well, why is this guy not mentioned in, in greater depth throughout parapsychology if he is indeed doing what it, he's claimed to have done? Um, so when I've gone through all of his other material, um, his book Is Your Child Psychic with Catherine Fair Donnelly and Dream Symbol and Psychic Power with Timothy Gray... I thought that it's incredible that he only managed to get these pieces out, these three books, and even the third one was published uh, just after he died. And yet he's got so much unwritten stuff that no one's ever heard about, especially the hauntings and so forth. With my oh. background... Yeah, go on. No, I was going to say, so how do we get hold of the book then? Well, let me quickly finish. It's on Amazon. It's on Amazon.co.uk and .com. Uh, but with my background being in hauntings and starting out parapsychology from having interest in hauntings, you know, it was great to finally work on a book that um, discussed hauntings and ghosts. So that was one thing that I wanted to do. I did want to get a book done that involved that, and it was a pleasure and honour um, to be um, allowed by the Foundation to finish off his book. And that allowed me to talk with people that knew him. So, you know, there's a whole appendices by um, Jennifer Allen, who was one of his students and worked with him for 20 years and discusses um, a brief investigation with ghosts with him. Um, I went into Amityville. I discussed stuff with Lloyd Auerbach. Um, there's an appendices section on some of his local um, haunting investigations around Maine with journalists. Um, so it was great to delve into unpublished data and know that you're probably one of the first ones reading it for a hell of a long time. And you're getting this out to a wider audience to hopefully make them more aware of this person who at one point um, was just lost in history. Hopefully it's, it's bringing him back to life in some ways through the, the literature and the work that he did. And also the foundation have been by my side for several, th uh, several years now, supporting my research and my PhD. Um, so, you know, it was one way to put something back into the foundation because, you know, nothing new is coming out. Alex passed away in 1990, so if something new could be published in his name and, and keep the research alive and the foundation alive, again, that was great. I felt like, you know, they're supporting me. I want to support the foundation and put something back. And, and there's still loads more that the public just don't know about Alex. He has an entire other book, a manuscript that I have, again, another unpublished piece called Contact, and it's um, an entire book on his research on UFO phenomena. That's never been published, and that's incredibly hard to get hold of as well. Um, the Foundation have a scarce few copies of it, which they copied, but that's about it. It's not in electronic format on the internet, and it's certainly not available on Amazon, and it's not a published book. It's just a manuscript that's um, done, but never produced. So uh, I just wanted to get something done. No, I have to interrupt you uh, because I'm trying to get you to give out the details where people can buy the book because we're running very close to the pizza bell and that's okay. why I was trying to get you to give those, those, those important bits of information out because obviously people might be wanting to buy the book and uh, perhaps give it as a present. Okay, well there you go. Um, run up to Christmas, go on Amazon.co.uk Amazon.co.uk or .com, Conversations with Ghosts, Alex Tanners with Calamine Cooper. It's available on paperback and on Kindle for instant download. And if you go on there, it will show links to Alex's other books, um, Is Your Child Psychic, Beyond Coincidence, Dream Symbols and Psychic Power, and also my other book, Telephone Calls from the Dead.
Well, Kel, I like and, that so much because... Well, uh, I've just know, got to add, Ron, before you uh, do... I'd um, like to add something, Steve, okay? Okay, uh, okay. So, anyways, Kel, I want to thank you so much because, you know, uh, Alex is in my area, Maine, which is not too far, and yeah. be honest with you, he's not that well-known around here, so I mean, you've done him a great uh, justice in publishing this book and, and telephone calls from the dead as well. Oh, thank you, thank you, uh, Ron. That's really kind of me. I, I'd like to um, go over to Portland, Maine, and meet up with his family, who are the main people who run the foundation. That also um, give a few more talks on his research. But hopefully, hopefully, this book will highlight um, his life again. Hopefully, people around Maine will start to remember him and the things that he did. So that'd be great. Okay, carry on, Stephen. We're okay, I was just going to say, as, as we're as we're on the subject of uh, books. Um, Many of many of our listeners will also be aware of Norrie, Norrie Miles, who's who's accompanied uh, us over to Spirit Quest, uh, and in fact, it's been more Spirit Quest than I've had hot dinners. Um, <laughs> Norrie has also got a book in the pipeline, so we're going to have to get Norrie on at some point. She's, uh, I think, got uh, eight books in in the pipeline uh, that have been contracted for next year with uh, Jonathan Frost. So uh, there's. Fost. So there's a bit of news there as well. So we've got lots more books coming out for uh, for 2014. Oh, excellent. So anyway, just, try, now, just trying to give out all the plugs. No, that's good. <laughs> but um, I mean, I, I did want to make that point because you know, really, Alex, uh, in my neck of the woods, I should you know, he should be, I should know my my name, but I I did not know very much of him, so. Uh, I find that interesting. I know I'm going to get a copy of the book because it's definitely, I'd like to learn more about this character. He almost seems Ed, Edward Casey-like, you know, Edgar Casey, whatever his name is. But anyways, Cal, it was great speaking with you again. You too, Ron. Always a pleasure. And uh, don't forget to save me a cup of mushy peas. Oh, I won't. Uh, Uh, Cal, you're going to be anywhere special? I guess we still got a couple of minutes left. Um, I think there's a few more radio shows coming up, which are listed on my website, calcooper.com. And tomorrow it's back to some more ghost hunting in the psychology department at the Ooh. University of Northampton. Ooh, you shouldn't go. be doing that. Yeah. Good night. God bless, everyone. <laughs> Good night. God bless. From ghoulies to ghosties, long-leggedy beasties, and things that go bump in the night. Deliver us. Good Lord.